Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. Hi, this is Kim Math, Chief Operating Officer at Rainmaker Thinking. You may remember me from episode 50. Bruce is traveling this week, so I'm here to introduce our next guest. This week on The Indispensables, Bruce talks with Lou Adler, CEO of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems and author of Hire With Your Head and The Essential Guide for Hiring. In the midst of the great resignation, there was no better time for Bruce and Lou to discuss what hiring managers get wrong about building job profiles, identifying top candidates, and the pitfalls of HR software. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Indispensables. I'm Bruce Tolgan, and today I have Lou Adler, CEO and founder of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems. He's also the best-selling author of Hire With Your Head, which is now in its fourth edition. Lou Adler is basically the guy. If you are struggling with the talent wars today, if you want to figure out how to bring in the best people, if you want to revamp your approach to hiring so that you are at the leading, bleeding edge, Lou Adler is the man. Lou Adler, welcome to The Indispensables. Hey, thank you very much, Bruce, and thank you very much for that nice introduction. I mean, in fact, I want to get that recording because I'm going to have to put it somewhere where everyone in the world can see it. Yeah, well, anyone who doesn't know is just missing out. I mean, you've been you've been the guy on this issue for a long, long time. And I mean, everyone's trying to solve this problem. When when they ask me, I tell them, hey, I can give you a lot of research. Or if you want to just take action, let me, let me uh, tell you who to call. Yeah, I appreciate that. No, thank you. How, how did you get to be the hiring guru, uh, the, the sort of the guy in, in the Western world? Well, actually, I appreciate you making the comments. I don't know that it's totally true about the guy, but certainly a guy. Yeah, my background's a bit unique, as I was telling you earlier. I, I got an engineering undergraduate degree, went to school upstate New York, middle engineering school, had a job in Southern California, been here for many years, 53 years now. And I was actually running a manufacturing company when I was, uh, I was on a pretty good track. 30, 32, I was running a manufacturing company, had an engineering background, MBA, finance, accounting, manufacturing, process controls. I hated the group president. Uh, just he and I clashed every time he came down every other week and he and I got in arguments and I quit every other month. And finally, I just said, I'm out of here. His boss tried to keep me. I said, I can't do it. I can't deal with this guy anymore. And I actually only became a recruiter to find another job. As I started looking at recruiting, I realized it was a business process. My background was always business processes, whether it's engineering, manufacturing, finance, and tying all those pieces together. So when I came to a recruiter, I said, hey, this is actually interesting business if people did it right all the time. And that eventually became performance-based hiring. It took 10, 20 years to figure that out. But what's hard today is it's still hard to get all the pieces together from how you define the job, how you find people, how you interview people, how you close people, and how you manage them and onboard them. I mean, so it's this integrated process. Very few people look at it from the whole list, uh, called the holistic standpoint, from the beginning to the end. Most people think it ends uh, when you hire a person. No, it doesn't end until the person's been on a job. And uh, when you think about it long-term, it changes everything. So long story, but I kind of fell into it and been doing it and turned out to be a very lucrative business for me, but decided, hey, I like the idea of building a business process around it. 
So what you're saying, just to drill down in case I want to make sure that nobody misses uh, what you're saying, I'm going to draw a bright line under it. What you're saying is you were the GM of a 300 person automotive OEM manufacturing company. And is, is that that's the, the experience you're referring to, right? I mean, so for people who don't know what what that is, maybe you could explain just a little bit because it's no small thing. Yes. At 32 years old, I was running a 300 person automotive manufacturing company. I previous to that, I had background in working on missile guidance systems with handheld electronics, with automotive, with... So I've been in a lot of different industries. So I got this job and every time I quit, literally I quit four times in one year. The chairman of the company kept on saying, you're an idiot. When I actually did it though, so I was using these recruiters. So that was really it. One of them was how to be the best recruiter in the world. So this is 1976, 77. And I used them to hire a number of people. One of the guys invited my wife and I out to his house for dinner and had a beautiful mansion. He was very successful, very, very successful. As we're driving home, my wife, and I was going 70, 80 hours a week, my wife says, why don't you become a recruiter? So in my back of my mind, my wife supported it. So this was, uh, so the idea of how to bought a group president whom I didn't like, and we clashed every time. My wife supported the idea of becoming a recruiter. And literally I made a placement in three weeks, doubled almost had, I would say it's probably, a third of my income in th- six weeks from the previous year. And I just walked out to an automotive plant. And this is an interesting story that everyone should listen to. I walked out to an automotive plant. It was in Southern California making uh, automotive accessories and wheels, hot rod wheels, because that's where California was the hotbed of that stuff with the Beach Boys and all this stuff. President of the company gives me this list of stuff he wants. And I said, Mike, this is not a job description. This is a person description. A job doesn't have skills. The job doesn't have competencies. The job doesn't have behaviors. That's a person. What does the person need to do to be successful? First assignment I ever had. That's, I just asked that obvious question. So he said, I need someone to turn around the manufacturing plant. I said, oh, let's walk out in the manufacturing plant. Had no discomfort. I mean, if it's only manufacturing plants, it was fine. Walked through the plant for an hour. Labor performance was terrible. Material was scattered all around the plant. The actual manufacturing processes were fundamentally flawed. Uh, and since I had that kind of background, I could look at now we need somebody to turn around the plant. So this is like in the second day of becoming a recruiter, a week later, I was interviewing candidates. I just made a dozen calls, people in the industry and others got a couple of referrals, made a placement. I didn't make another placement for six months. So So then I was ready to quit. I said, ah, I can find it. And I already had a couple of offers. I had other offers even when I quit. So I was never worried about that part. But then I learned the truth. Six months later, I learned what it was about. So many candidates make judgments without any information. They don't know the job. They just said, how much money is it? What's the location? Okay, I'll take that. I'll be interested. So the idea of ensuring that full disclosure was on the table changed everything. And once you let a candidate understand the role and a candidate and you had some credibility that the recruiter knew the job and knew how to interview, you could put more pieces together, more placements together for the right reasons, the long-term reasons. I kind of intuitively figured that out in six months. It took a lot of years to kind of put it as a process together. But once I figured that out, I said I made as many placements as I wanted. I could make two, three, one month, I made seven. There was nothing to it. So, but after a while, it was more the idea of what are the components that bring people together where the job is both successful and the person is satisfied and the hiring manager says, this was a great person. That took a number of years to evolve, but eventually became higher with your head, the books. Well, I want to unpack some of that because the first thing I'm hearing is that you and your wife had a very nice dinner and then she had the great insight that, hey, wait a minute, why don't you do that? And so let's let's give credit to your wife. Of, did you say 51 years? I met her at a bar in Manhattan Beach, California. We still married. 
Uh, well, there you go. Uh, so you did a good job recruiting there, obviously. And so she had had some personal experience being on the other side of that recruiting process. And then uh, and then it, uh, uh, you immediately had proof of concept because you did a successful hire uh, and, and you saw, wait a minute, this could be lucrative. To what do you attribute your insight about, you know, because I always say this from our research that, you know, there's a lot of work to get done and you got to focus on staffing the work. Maybe I learned that from you all those years ago. Where did you get that insight? When you're in manufacturing and engineering, if you don't have a spec of what you're building that everybody agrees to, no, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it done. If the procurement department doesn't know what the manufacturing department and the engineering department doesn't know what they're designing and the marketing department doesn't know what they're selling, the salespeople don't know the product, it all falls apart. So in a job, when you think about it, I've been to many companies, and so have you, Bruce. You go to a company, and we got to have a cultural fit. I was just with a, talking to a company yesterday, and it was four people from the company. So what's a cultural fit look like? They couldn't answer it. They're all kind of good conceptual words, but I said, well, how do you know? And no, everybody had a different way of taking it. So you got all these superficialities of what something looks like until you can define it properly as like a, a design spec or a product spec. So this kind of goes back to my first engineering class. Professor, first class, engineering design class, freshman, 18 years old, and he shows a picture of a bridge crossing the St. Lawrence Seaway, and then he gets closer and closer and closer, and the images coming up, and it was black and white pictures, and the bridge was off by six inches. They came from one side and to the other side, and they were off, and he could see, and he could see the bridge being built, and he showed it, and he said, in this class, you'll learn that never happens to you. So what was interesting is that hey, you got, to get it, you got to get it right. You can't be 67% accurate. And you look at all this HR stuff, they judge it by statistics. Well, 67% accurate means 33% of the time you're going to be wrong on false positives and just as many false uh, negatives. So basically it's random. The people you don't hire and the people you do hire, it's random luck. You didn't hire the right person. So I, I would say the insight wasn't really insightful. It was more, hey, if you're an engineer or, or data matters, you kind of need have to be right 99% of the time. So I think that's where it started. So I don't know that it was insight. It was just training. Okay, but but the insight I'm talking about or the observation that you could see immediately that what this guy was looking for was a description of skills, a description of experience, a description of a person, you said, not the job, not the work that needs to get done. But that's an ingenious thing to see. And you, you, you attribute that to your engineering background? I'd say it seems like common sense. <laughs> now, so let's say this. It's common sense in one way, but it's also not altruistic. Most managers want an MBA or academics. They want this kind of background. They want this kind of years. They want people to look like this, this tall, went to this school. They want all of that kind of stuff. But as a recruiter, selfishly, I can never find anybody who could do all that, had that background. And even if they had that background, they might be competent or motivated. So I just reverse the equation. Tell me what you want someone to do. And I'll find someone who can do it. Give me a little bit of relief. So I think in some way when you get to, and I don't want to really pat myself on the back. I mean, I, I didn't become a vice president of a manufacturing company and then a general manager at 31 because I was a lazy good for nothing. But so I, I got, I remember I was just talking to somebody else. Somebody said, how'd you get my first non-financial, my first non-engineering job was in finance, but my first non-financial job was a director of material control for a company. He said, well, you don't have any background in uh, logistics or supply chain. I said, I'll take the APICS course, which is American Production Inventory Control Society. So I took the course for a week and I got an A on the course. It was, it was all bullshit. You just read the book and you get, you get a good grade. 
So at some level, I knew that it wasn't all of this stuff that was the predictor. It was the track record of performance. And so I kind of intuitively knew that, hey, there were a lot of great people out here who have a fast track, who if you can find them and you have to work hard to find them, you're going to find some great people. But they didn't have the exact mix of skills and experiences that you should have. It's so often, you know, it's like, well, you have to have X amount of experience. You have to have Y amount of uh, degrees and you have to have Z amount of, you know, whatever the rest of the criteria mix. And I think there's a little bit of CYA among hiring managers in that, right? You know, in other words, like, okay, hey, sorry, we can't give you that chance. Instead of uh, finding somebody and, and, and investing in that person, making a bet on that person, and then being willing to invest in making sure that the person gets onboarded properly and gets plugged into a success track. Yeah, I think you just said it there. It's harder to hire a stranger because of that CYA thing. You're a stranger, boy, there's a big risk, but you're a known quantity, even referred, hey, Bruce is a real top marketing executive. He hasn't been in this industry, but he's a fast learner and people, and if you know that, hey, I've worked with this guy before, of course he could handle it. When you know somebody, you know all the performance attributes, the team skills, the intellect, the work ethic, you know all these things, which you don't know with a stranger. When you think about all the best and most successful hires, they come from referrals. I'm doing a lot of work with the, in the agricultural industry now. I just got into it in the valuated food products. Uh, so a couple of VCs and investment banks I'm working with. And they told me yesterday, they told me they hired a guy for a big soy processing plant, $250 million plant in the middle of Iowa, I guess. I don't even know where Iowa is, but it's somewhere in the middle of the country. But I said, how's that search going for that uh, general manager? Oh, we've got a great guy. He said, well, one of the guys on the board knew somebody, and this guy knew this person, and this guy worked with him, and one of the board members, so we brought a new board member on, and this guy recommended this guy, and the guy they hired didn't get the CEO role for another company, so it was perfect. They already knew the guy. I mean, it's just, and it happens all of the time. So as a recruiter, I say, you know, you've got to spend, if the best hires are referrals, you should spend most of your time getting referrals, and most recruiters don't want to do that. This is this is the idea that I had all these names on LinkedIn, I'll send a few emails out. They're dealing with strangers. So in my mind, if you know the job and you deal with referrals, you still have to know the job is to be a credible interface or go-between. But when you start dealing with referrals, it changes how you hire people. And I think when I had my search firm and for 20 years or 25 years, we made 1,500 placements. We weren't huge, but I would say 90% of those were referrals. All we spent time is getting referrals. 90% of those people were successful. And we got repeat business all the time. And I think that's where I, when I mentioned earlier, that I do, don't think that HR tech has really done the right job. It's made uh, people think it's easy to make hiring decisions. And to me, they've just made efficiency the goal, not quality of hire the goal. Yeah, and then they wonder why uh, uh, people are washing out in the first six months or the first year or the first two years. Uh, it's because an applicant management system is not making um, a judgment about a person. It's making a judgment about a set of criteria. Yeah, right. That doesn't predict success. Absolutely right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that our research shows, I think this uh, would align with you, is that buyer's remorse is one of the biggest reasons for early voluntary departure. And what our research shows is the second is a poor onboarding process. Yes. And let me say 100% agree, but then you go to the root cause. It goes to the root cause because they didn't really know the job. Uh, we did a real superficial survey. I wouldn't put a lot of credibility behind it, but 1,500 people said only 15% uh, of the person, people who took the job actually knew what they were expected of them when they took it. So buyer's remorse, it's you didn't know the job. 
So you get candidates who take the job. And this is where I say most candidates take the job for what they get on the start date and not the work they're going to be doing. So when you get seduced by general responsibilities, the comp size, the title of the job, the location, name of the company, I'll take that's interesting. Then you compete on factors that don't predict performance, which is, okay, I'm getting 10% more. I'll take that job. Yeah, but it's a 30% worse job. And a year from now, you're going to be looking for something else. So yes, your research would support the idea of if you don't know the work you're going to be doing, how can you possibly be motivated to do that work? It's random luck. Do you feel like uh, what you bring to this uh, sometimes intangible process is your ability to look to root causes, to think like an engineer? Is, is that part of your secret? 100%. I, that's why I'm kind of unusual. I mean, I piss people off a lot. So my first job, so in some way it goes to my first job. When I told you that I went from upstate New York to Southern California, it was the middle of Vietnam and draft age of 22. But I was an engineer, so I kind of knew that wasn't really going to happen. But I got a job in aerospace working on the Minuteman nuclear missile guidance system. And my first job was to figure out when it was off course and it wouldn't go back on course and when you should destruct the whole missile. Turns out I did not do a good job of due diligence. I was upstate New York, along the Canadian border, little engineering school called Clarkson. I got an offer. Somebody called me from Southern California. It was middle of March, snowing out. And I get an offer, a call from somebody in Anaheim, California. Uh, and he said, hey, I'd like to make you an offer. No interview. I just looked at my resume. I did pretty good in school. So, And I said, what's the I said, what's the comp? And that was fine. I said, what's the weather? So it's 15 degrees in snow. So this is the first, second question. Can you have any questions? What's the weather? So it's 72 degrees right now. I said, that's pretty good. I said, and is there any relocation? Because I didn't have any money whatsoever. I'm, you know, he said, yeah, we'll give you 15 cents a mile. And he cut, oh, we'll give you $537 or something like that. And I said, when do I get that money? <laughs> do I get it a month later, six months later? He said, no, you'll get it the next day, the day after you start. So I said, I'll take that offer. I mean, literally, that was it. Well, then when I got the job, when I started, my, the boss he says, oh, you're a mechanical engineer with control systems. I thought you were an electrical engineer with control systems. And I was all a bunch of double E's, uh, electrical engineers. Now, what was interesting, a couple of things were interesting about that story, which were profound. Because I had a, a mechanical background, I was the only person who understood the guidance system at the mechanical level, how the engines worked, how the flight control. So I kind of had a different, I never understood the electronics of how the actual thing worked. So I brought a different perspective, and that took me six months to figure out. More as important, though, most people hated the job. And these guys were anywhere from 25 to 50. So they're all engineers. Like maybe there's one woman there who's a systems engineer, but I could be wrong about that. But then I, as I got to know these people, they had all just come over from the lunar landing project, rock, the, the excursion module went around the moon. So it was lunar, I don't know what you, what you call it, the one that went around the moon, the orbit, whatever that was, they built that. So, and they all came over a year prior to that. So the project was done, put a man on the moon. And they said, we worked four or five years on that 24-7, didn't want to take a day off, never wanted to leave. It was the most exciting job in the world. But they said, this is exactly the same work, but the mission was different. The mission of launching a minute, uh, nuclear missile on your enemy and get, getting it with a mile was same exact technology as putting a man on the moon, but they hated it. So that got me the other idea of a couple things learned. Number one, I took a job without really knowing what the job was. So it was kind of a lesson that turned out to be positive, but it was still, an, an, I was kind of disappointed. And then also the mission is important. So when I take an assignment, I, I always ask, what is the work that the person needs to do? And why is this work important? 
I don't care if it's an entry-level sales job, if it's a customer service or it's a president, what's the impact of this job on something other than the person? So that became the internal motivator. So when you want to hire someone who's motivated to do the work, you got to get both. They got to be motivated to do that work. And if you can tie it to a bigger mission, you've got the opportunity to really hire some great people for the long term. And that was your first hiring experience. You were on the receiving end of that. Um, we're going to take a, a break um, and then we'll be back with Lou Adler, CEO and founder of Performance-Based Hiring Learning Systems, best-selling author of Hire With Your Head and the hiring guru, uh, certainly of anyone I know, uh, he's the man. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, the author of Drive Your Career, Nine High Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Own Success. If you like listening to the Indispensables as much as I do, maybe you'll be a fan of my podcast, Be Brave at Work. Each week, I ask my guests about their experiences with bravery at work and ask them to share one to two ideas on things you can do differently to be brave when you need it the most. I've interviewed some fantastic people from around the globe and from all levels of organizations who share some amazing insights, including Peter Bregman, best-selling author and leadership coach, Harvard University professor and thought leader, Amy Edmondson, and Timothy Clark, founder and CEO of The Leader Factor and author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, and many, many more. Please listen and subscribe to Be Brave at Work at BeBraveAtWork.com or listen to our twice-weekly broadcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you are listening now. We are back with Lou Adler, CEO and founder of the Adler Group, performance-based hiring learning systems. Um, so what, what, what are you telling business leaders right now? There's, there's a huge supply and demand imbalance. Uh, what are you telling them about their, uh, their strategy for, for solving that problem? You just hit it right there. You just said it's a strategy issue. So two things. Number one, you can't assume or you can't use a process designed to weed out the weak when there's a shortage of talent. And that, when you look at all HR tech, what they do is you apply based on a set of skills that doesn't predict performance and you filter out everybody who doesn't meet this artificial profile. In a talent shortage, you've got to attract the best. And if you attract the best with those sk same skills, you're going to wind up with people who are competent to do it, but not motivated to do it. It goes back to the idea of, yes, you need to have an attract-in strategy, but you also have to define the work as a series of performance objectives, not a list of skills, with the idea being if the person can do this work, he or she has all the skills needed. Diverse candidates will have a different set of skills. Old people, if they're motivated now, they got to be competent and motivated to do the work, not just competent. So the idea is it's a strategy issue of attract in, and it's also how you define the skill set. And if you use competencies, behaviors, academics, and a, a list of experiences, you're not going to get the right person. So that's why you got to start twofold. It's a strategy issue attract, and you also got to define the work as a series of performance objectives. And I tell, I just talked to a person the other day. I said, I will not compromise on the performance objectives. If you need someone to do this business development work, that's what it is. They have to do this work. They have to do this environment. They have to talk to these kind of people. It takes this long to learn. That, that I won't compromise on that. But you got to tell me that person doesn't need to go to a top 10 MBA school. Maybe they, I don't know, they need an MBA. But obviously, they have to do that work. That's immaterial. Don't get hung up on the skills. Get hung up on the performance objectives. So therefore, if you do the performance objectives, you open the pool. You track the right people to that job for the right reasons. You track that through, hey, has a person done this kind of work in his or her background? Since you've defined the job roughly, you've also started the onboarding process when you wrote the job spec. The onboarding isn't this artificial bridge. And now I'm going to tell you, Bruce, what you have to do. The point is, yes, if you open up the talent pool based on performance objectives, 
and you attract these people, the right people, you spend a lot of your time getting referrals, you'll be able to win the talent wars for the long term, not just for the start date. And I think too many people are focused on filling jobs and not hiring great people. Yeah. And so what people, uh, anyone who, who, who knows who you are knows, uh, just uh, for the record, you know, more than 40,000 recruiters and hiring managers uh, have attended Lou Adler's groundbreaking hiring workshops. So listen up. Uh, to what he's saying, because you're getting this on the podcast. At least you're getting a few granules of of this incredible wisdom. How is this working for people? Are they getting people? Uh, they, they're getting people who can do the work, even if it wasn't what they had in their mind's eye. Is that it? I mean, is that what you're trying to help them change their perspective first? And people say, Lou, your process is too hard. We want to do it the easy way. So certain recruiters naturally do it. Certain hiring managers know that, hey, we've got to focus on performance objectives. But if the recruiter isn't able to have the credibility with the hiring manager to know the job, hey, Bruce, what do you want this person to do for this marketing role? What do you want this person to do for this uh, head of manufacturing? Whatever it is, if they don't have the confidence to ask the manager that question, they just are pushing paper then. Now I want you to do that, I want you to do that. So hiring managers are in many cases at fault. And then there's some that managers, of course, that's what I'm gonna do. And it's hard to get HR to see it that way. So I think in some level, HR tech is taking the easy route. They look, oh, let me just go to competency models. Let me just do behavior, because that's 60, 65% credible. Yeah, but it's 35% off and a bunch of false positives, the wrong people are being brought in. And many times the people you're hiring are the wrong people. So there's a lot, it's really 50-50 mindset. So I think there's this whole system level thinking from hiring from the day the rec is signed till after the person's on board, nobody thinks logically that way. So the whole point is, while I believe what I offer makes sense, I think it's not as scalable as it could be. I can do it one-on-one with anybody, uh, doing it two or three-on-one is possible, but you need a company to buy into the concept to make it work. And I told one president, one of our biggest clients, he said, Lou, how do I implement performance-based hiring? I said, as far as I'm concerned, Callum, is you don't let anybody open a rec without a list of performance objectives written down as part of it. It's got to be part of the rec. You don't approve it. And you don't hire anybody unless the hiring team has completed a talent scorecard. We have a talent scorecard, but it's the team agrees to it uh, and they do it ver- uh, officially, verbally on the phone, but they do it together. When you say a talent scorecard, you mean what uh, What? What are the traits and characteristics uh, that are critical to success? Yes, but it's also in context of that job you've defined. Is this person motivated to do this work? What's the proof? Can this person work in this environment? Well, what's the evidence you have? Can this person solve problems like he or she will face? What's the evidence? So it's the sharing of evidence against that performance profile that needs to be mapped. It's easy. To, I don't like, you know, if you like somebody, this is where bias comes. If I like somebody, I ask easier questions and you ignore negatives. Oh, this is a good guy. He could do it. And if you don't like somebody, you ask hard questions to prove to the HR department the person's no good. So, so what do you make of this? So I, I, I think this aligns with what you're saying. I was just talking with a CEO recently um, and he was saying, look, you know, it turns out it's 50-50. You know, you just you make bets on people and half the time it works out and half the time it doesn't work out. And I said to him, like, from my perspective, it sounds like that's a cop out. 
I agree with you 100%. It's a total cop-out for not doing it right. Yeah, and, and, and I think, by the way, in this particular situation, there are investors. And I think sometimes the C-level group, you know, they're so worried about uh, the investors are going to say, well, how can you put this person in as, you know, the, the chief science officer if the person doesn't have a PhD in XYZ? Or how can you put this person in as the CFO if the person hasn't been a CFO or a deputy CFO in in a company with X amount of money. And my perspective is, well, the problem is that position's been open forever. And then you, you, you tried to hire two people and it didn't go right. So maybe you're not thinking about it just right. Well, I would agree with you, uh, but they do have some competing objectives. You do have to raise money. So yeah, how would, you know, is somebody going to really put in $25 million if this person who's spending the money doesn't have this background? So nonetheless, uh, you might need both in certain situations. Have to be able to do the work and have the right credentials to do the work. But just having the right credentials doesn't mean they can do the work. So it starts getting complicated for just those issues you talked about. There's a lot of human issues and other competing objectives that tend to put people off track. But Lou, if these things weren't complicated, then you and I would both have to get real jobs. Yeah, well, I had a real job. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's more than I can say. But I've never really had a real job. What do you think about the, the wisdom or the lack of wisdom of uh, going down into your own talent pool? and looking for people who, uh, who are underutilized because they maybe didn't check some of those boxes, but somebody who, you know, gee, this person's been here for days, weeks, months, or years, Everyone knows this person is great, but this person is sort of stuck in a lower level position. What do you think about the idea of, of identifying those folks and trying to lift them up? I think a proactive approach to doing that is important. I kind of lucked out in one job I had. It was my first, after I got an MBA, I became a financial analyst for uh, Rockwell International. And they had a HR person for all the financial analysts and they moved you around. So it was kind of like they forced you to do it. Rotation programs force you to do it. So I think proactively to do that. And there is some technology that's starting to focus on those intangibles. But then it's also a, a function of the, the person, him or herself. If they're good, they will work harder. Uh, I look for people who volunteer for jobs that are over their head because Really, reality is if you take a job that you volunteer for that you shouldn't actually do, if you screw it up, nobody's going to, hey, you shouldn't have done it. You, you wouldn't have got it anyway. We took the risk. So you get credit for just trying. And then if you actually do it, you get more credit. So it's like uh, you can't lose. Somebody told me that. Just volunteer for stuff you can't do and see what happens. <laughs> I did it. It worked. I said, okay. And then it turns out most of these jobs aren't that tough if you're you just can't be afraid to make mistakes, but you got to get in there and start working hard. I don't know if that's the solution, but I totally support your point. You definitely need to be proactive, develop the team you've got, because a lot of great people out there who aren't getting it, they probably don't even know that they're literally that good. So the first thing you're trying to tell people in today's environment is uh, stop narrowing your potential talent pool. Start expanding your potential talent pool by focusing on what is the work that needs to get done? What are the real performance metrics? And the, the credentials may or may not not be there, but the key to success is going to be are the performance metrics. Uh, is that is can this person do that work? Right. That that's where you start. You can't compromise on that. That's if you need someone to turn around a factory. Well, the person's probably turned around some factories. It might not be exactly the same. The person might have you think ten years old. Maybe somebody's really good and do it in five years. Maybe they've got a different kind of a degree than you would have thought. So focus on the outcomes uh, rather than the inputs. And then, uh, and that's going to actually open up your talent pool, not narrow it. 
And another thing you said is that most successful hires, um, you know, there are referrals involved. So we know somebody knows this person. How do you fill in that gap if we don't have, because refer, you know, uh, a job reference is different from a referral, right? LinkedIn and LinkedIn Recruiter is a pretty powerful tool. It allows me as a subscriber to look at my connections. Let's assume you're connected to me, which I assume you are. I can actually search on your connections. So rather than me ask, hey, Bruce, do you know anybody who can handle this VP marketing role? I could say, Bruce, you know, I'm just looking at your connections. It appears that Mary Smith and Bill Jones both are qualified. What do you think of those people? So in some way, it's proactively generating referrals. Search on your your connections for weak connections and ask about them. Right? And say, who do you know? You could say, hey, who's the best marketing person you know, Bruce? But the other way is, what do you think of this person and that person? So it, there are ways to generate referrals and really tapping into weak connections, which are your second degree connections. And to me, that's the value of technology. There's other tools like Seekout that allow you to do similar kinds of things to dig into referrals. And then when I call Mary Smith up and I say, you know, Bruce Tolgan asked me to call you. Oh, how's Bruce doing? So it's almost like a referral changes the dimensions. It's not like a cold call. It's like a semi-warm call. And then the barrier, you know, when you call someone cold, I call a candidate cold who doesn't know me and I don't know them. It's a pretty awkward situation. Uh, you got to be pretty credible to break that ice. But if I call Mary Smith, who I referred from Bruce Tolgan, here's a job. He didn't think you were looking, but he thought you were a really tremendously talented person. I just want to get to know you. So then you start talking to the person almost as it's just a warmer conversation, a, a real conversation. Hey, Mary, here's why I think this job could be interesting, at least to pursue for 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, I'll talk to you. It's that kind of conversations that I think are missing. Uh, people have made it very transactional, very cold, very, hey, let's just see if the mo money works, the title works, and you almost perpetuate a bad hiring the situ situation. And the most technologies try to do that same coldness faster. So to me, that's not a winning solution. So that that that's what's failing about the hiring, uh, the the HR information systems, applicant tracking approach. Yeah, there's no touch. It's all high tech, no touch. So I say you have to blend high tech with high touch. There's a lot of things you can do. Now, technology can get you the names much quicker, but you still got to know the job. You still got to be credible. You still got to do a convince the person, hey, let's listen about what this is and see if it's a true career move. Year one and year two is really what matters, where you're going, not where you've been. Where you're going, right? How are you going to earn more? And, and do you have any special techniques for populating that contact with more data points? Like one of the things I like to do when I'm in an organization is I like to ask a lot of people about everyone else. Uh, so it's got a little bit of a snooping feel. Uh, but boy, you know, there's nothing like talking to people who've worked with this person and talking with a bunch of people who've worked with this person and starting to learn about this person from the perspective of his or her colleagues. Is that too intrusive? Is that too time consuming for most hiring process? Yeah, I'd say it is hard to do. I mean, it is, it's invaluable, but from a practical standpoint, how much time can you do that? On the other hand, it's actually already done if you use a referral. I mean, so you kind of already done that. You wouldn't have got the name if that those situations weren't there. So you kind of do it in reverse. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a stranger and it's a critical, impactful, strategic hiring decision, you have to do that. You can't take shortcuts. And I remember one search I did for a treasurer for a big computer company. I did a. a I decided to do the reference check, uh, and the guy just it was turned out to be bad. And here I had a placement that I could make, and I called the CFO up. 
I said, Fred, Fred, I don't think you should hire this guy. Find it some. He said, we got to hire him. He was all aggravated with me. I said, I can't recommend him. I can't do it. I've done something. He didn't. He wanted to make the decision to hire the person. They ultimately didn't. We found another guy. And uh, But sometimes you just, as a recruiter, you're in it for the placement. But sometimes you got to bite the bullet when you find stuff out. Yeah, but you got to play the long game. That's a great line. You got to play the long game. I love that line. If you're, if you're honest and true, like how do you have a reputation like you? It's because you may irritate people in the short term, but in the long term, they look back and say, wow, that guy was right again. Yeah, no, it's sometimes. And if you have a chance to do it again, I mean, sometimes you do, sometimes you, but I think you're irrespective of the moral of what your comp component is, play the long game always, even from an ethical standpoint. It doesn't matter. It's nothing to do with hiring. It's just to do with life. But the problem is that the long game is played one moment at a time. It's tricky. Let me uh, ask you uh, for your, what's the secret of your success? I don't know that I'd say it's the secret of my success. I'd say the secret of hiring, and it's a formula that I developed for hiring, and maybe that's a, a way to summarize. So here's my formula for hiring success. Ability to do the work in relationship to fit drives motivation. And because motivation is so important, it's squared. Ability in relation to fit, motivation squared equals performance. And if a person's not motivated to do the work, he or she's going to underperform. But the fit factors are hard to measure. Fit with the manager, fit with the style, fit with the culture, sit with the politics. Uh, ability is actually easy to measure. Hard and soft skills, and they're relatively easy to measure. Hard skills are easy. Soft skills are a little bit harder, but you look at management team, you can measure it. The fit factors are the ones that matter. And if you don't get the right fit, a great person can underperform. And it's if you get somebody who's great ability and generally works hard, but circumstantially isn't going to work hard in your situation, you're dead. And that's why I got demotivated by this group president. He came down to the office every other week. I, I, I would go 70, 80 hours a week. When he showed up, I left at four o'clock. As soon as he left, I said, I got to get out of here. Hit it, the guy. He's such a demotivating person. No matter how hard your work was never good enough. So I quit. He was wrong most of the time. I didn't know what was going on. So I've had that personal experience too and know that the fit factors are so important. Uh, knowing the job, knowing the fit factors. Uh, and if you don't know that, you're putting people into situations and people are putting themselves in situations that they're problematic. And I think that's really the issue that most, why we have this great resignation and so much turmoil going on. The great Lou Adler, the the guru on hiring. Check him out. He's on. Uh, he he he's one of the top bloggers on LinkedIn's uh, influencer program. Just Google him. The great Lou Adler. Thank you so much for being a guest on the Indispensables. Great. Thanks, Bruce. Great talking with you again. Let's do this. Maybe even off camera or off microphone. Indeed. Next week, Bruce talks with Dima Dubitsky, a leader in medical technology research and development and an old friend. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.